Hello and welcome to The Forge. My name is James and this is the place where I teach verse by verse through the Bible. I am a retired U.S. Air Force Master Sergeant who went on to serve the Lord's Church as an assistant pastor, worship leader, and youth pastor. During my time in these roles, I finished seminary and I hold a Master of Arts in Biblical Studies and a Master of Divinity. I've been involved in ministry in some form for over 25 years, and it is my hope that this podcast will be a blessing to you as I teach from God's Word, the Bible. Forge exists to serve those whom the Holy Spirit is calling into a relationship with God through His Son, Jesus Christ. This is done through biblical teaching so that individuals understand God's forgiveness, live in its reality, and overcome the wounds caused by bondage to sin. I will always hold to the truth found in scriptures, and a summary of my doctrinal statement is worded perfectly in the five solas of the Reformation. I believe Christians experience gratefulness and renewed purpose as they are encouraged by the words of life, which spring from the Bible. I pray that this podcast plays a role in God's ongoing work in your life. Don't forget to look in the show notes for links to the podcast website where you can leave a donation or leave a voice message with questions. I will be collecting questions for a future Q&A podcast. Also, please leave a review on whatever platform you are using. That and telling others about this podcast are the two biggest things you can do for me. Now grab your Bible and get ready for a verse-by-verse study. May God bless the reading and the hearing of His Word. Before we begin today's lesson in Genesis 31, I want to take a moment to address a question I received about something I noted from a previous episode. Episode, You may remember that back in Genesis 27, I stated something to the effect of this. Um, I wanted to draw your attention to the fact that Rebecca never sees her son Jacob again after he flees to Rebekah's homeland. So this is Jacob leaving the land of Canaan, going to live with Laban. And I said, you know, you can jump ahead and read Genesis chapter 31, and you can read in Genesis 35, and you can see where I'm getting this from. And you might notice also that um, as we were getting into Genesis 31 today, we're going to get into Genesis 35 later, the Lord willing. But you'll notice that when we get there, that Rebecca's nurse, Deborah's death is mentioned, but that Rebecca's death is not. And so I was asked, well, what are you implying by that? Why did you bring that out? What's the importance of it? And that's a great question. And I'm glad to have the opportunity to clear up any confusion on this point, I was simply pointing out that when someone's death is recorded in the Bible, which is God's 
word that their death is memorialized forever. Now, why do I say that? I say that because God's word will never pass away. And God deemed their death important enough to be recorded for all time in his word. I was not implying that Rebecca went to hell or anything like that. I was simply pointing out that as far as scripture goes, when Jacob leaves to go live with Laban, he never sees his mother again. Her last encounter with her son, as far as what we know from the Bible, has to do with his leaving his own country in part due to their cooperative deception of her husband, Jacob's father, Isaac. I was wanting us to see that while Rebecca's death is not mentioned in Scripture, that obviously her deception is mentioned in Scripture. The last thought we have of her is her saying goodbye to her son, Jacob. I was simply pointing out that if I was going to be memorialized in God's word, (laughs) I would not want it to be because of my deception. And we might also want to remember that there's no record in scripture that she ever shared with her husband, Isaac, what God had told her about the two nations that were wrestling within her. Remember when she was pregnant and remember God told her that he had chosen the younger son, Jacob. Thus, it's entirely possible that Rebecca acted according to what she perceived as the best interest of her son, Jacob. We're simply not told in Scripture. Again, I remind you that what we have here is a summary. What we should take away from this entire saga is that God does not need our help. And that was another point that I wanted to bring out. The blessings of Jacob came from God and they were in place before his birth. Not God's birth, but Jacob's birth. Let me say that again. The blessings of Jacob came from God and they were in place before Jacob was born. So hopefully that cleared up some of the confusion. If there was any, hopefully that answers the question. And with that slight review over now, let's prepare our hearts and our minds for a study in Genesis chapter 31. May God open our understanding that we would gain knowledge from the Holy Spirit as we contemplate these things. May he help us to apply these principles that we see here in Scripture to our daily life as we seek out ways to better serve him. So let us now read and hear the words of the living God, Genesis 31. Now, Jacob heard the words of Laban's sons, saying, Jacob has taken away all that was our father's, and from what was our father's, he has acquired all this wealth. And Jacob saw the countenance of Laban, and indeed it was not favorable toward him as before. Then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your family, and I will be with you. 
So Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah to the field to his flock and said to them, I see your father's countenance that it is not favorable toward me as before, but the God of my father has been with me. And you know that with all my might I have served your father, yet your father has deceived me and changed my wages ten times. But God did not allow him to hurt me. If he said thus, the speckled shall be your wages, then all the flocks bore speckled. And if he said thus, the streaked shall be your wages, then all the flocks bore streaked. So God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. And it happened at the time when the flocks conceived that I lifted my eyes and saw in a dream, and behold, the rams which leaped upon the flocks were streaked, speckled, and gray spotted. Then the angel of God spoke to me in a dream, saying, Jacob, and I said, Here I am. And he said, Lift your eyes now and see, all the rams which leap on the flocks are streaked, speckled, and gray spotted, for I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed the pillar and where you made a vow to me. Now arise, get out of this land and return to the land of your family. Then Rachel and Leah answered and said to him, Is there still any portion or inheritance for us in our father's house? Are we not considered strangers by him? For he has sold us and also completely consumed our money. For all these riches which God has taken from our father are really ours and our children's. Now then, whatever God has said to you, do it. Then Jacob rose and set his sons and his wives on camels. And he carried away all his livestock and all his possessions which he had gained, his acquired livestock which he had gained in Padan Aram, to go to his father Isaac in the land of Canaan. Now Laban had gone to shear his sheep, and Rachel had stolen the household idols that were her father's. And Jacob stole away, unknown to Laban the Syrian, in that he did not tell him that he intended to flee. So he fled with all he had. He arose and crossed the river and headed toward the mountains of Gilead. And Laban was told on the third day that Jacob had fled. Then he took his brethren with him and pursued him for seven days' journey, and he overtook him in the mountains of Gilead. But God came to Laban the Syrian in a dream by night and said to him, Be careful that you speak to Jacob, neither good nor bad. So Laban overtook Jacob and pitched his tent in the mountains, and Laban with his brethren pitched in the mountains of Gilead. And Laban said to Jacob, What have you done that you have stolen away unknown to me and carried away my daughters like captives taken with the sword? Why did you flee away secretly and steal away from me and not tell me? For I might have sent you away with joy and songs and timbrel and harp. And you did not allow me to kiss my sons and my daughters, now you have done foolishly in so doing. It is in my power to do you harm, but the God of your father spoke to me last night, saying, Be careful that you speak to Jacob, neither good nor bad. And now you have surely gone, because you greatly long for your father's house. But why did you steal my gods? 
Then Jacob answered and said to Laban, because I was afraid, for I said, perhaps you would take your daughters from me by force. With whomever you find your gods, do not let them live. In the presence of our brethren, identify what I have of yours and take it with you. For Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. And Laban went into Jacob's tent, into Leah's tent, and into the two maids' tent, but he did not find them. Then he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's tent. Now Rachel had taken the household idols, put them in a camel's saddle, and sat on them. And Laban searched all about the tent, but did not find them. And she said to her father, Let it not displease my Lord that I cannot rise before you, for the manner of women is with me. And he searched, but did not find the household idols. Then Jacob was angry and rebuked Laban. And Jacob answered and said to Laban, What is my trespass? What is my sin that you have so hotly pursued me? Although you have searched all my things, what part of your household things have you found? Set it here before my brethren and your brethren, that they may judge between us both. These twenty years I have been with you. Your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried their young, and I have not eaten the rams of your flock. That which was torn by beasts I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it. You required it from my hand, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. There I was in the day. The drought consumed me and the frost by night, and my sleep departed from my eyes. Thus I have been in your house twenty years. I served you fourteen years for your two daughters and six years for your flock, and you have changed my wages ten times. Unless the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had been with me, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God has seen my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. And Laban answered and said to Jacob, These daughters are my daughters, and these children are my children, and this flock is my flock. All that you see is mine. But what can I do this day to these my daughters or to their children whom they have born? Now therefore, come, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. Then Jacob said to his brethren, Gather stones. And they took stones and made a heap, and they ate there on that heap. Laban called it Jagar Sahad. <laughs> but Jacob called it Galid. And Laban said, This heap is a witness between you and me this day. Therefore, its name was called Galid. Also Mizpah, because he said, May the Lord watch between you and me when we are absent one from another. If you afflict my daughters, or if you take other wives besides my daughters, although no man is with us, See, God is witness between you and me. Then Laban said to Jacob, Here is this heap, and here is this pillar, which I have placed between you and me. This heap is a witness, and this pillar is a witness, that I will not pass beyond this heap to you, and you will not pass beyond this heap and this pillar to me for harm. 
the God of Abraham, the God of Nahor, and the God of their father judge between us. And Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac. Then Jacob offered a sacrifice on the mountain and called his brethren to eat bread. And they ate bread and stayed all night on the mountain. And early in the morning Laban arose and kissed his sons and his daughters and blessed them. Then Laban departed and returned to his place. I want to point out Jacob's patience in all of this. You know he desired to go home. There was no long-distance calling. There were no cell phones. There's no social media, picture sharing. There's no interstate highways and all of the modern conveniences that we enjoy, at least here in the West. How many days and nights had he thought about his home? No doubt he missed his mother and father. He must have wondered from time to time how they were doing. Yet he waited. He delayed his return, even though he probably could have done some things to hasten his return. We must also note here that God's promise always remained firmly fixed in his mind, in Jacob's mind. John Calvin reminds us that Jacob revealed something of his human nature and that he postponed his return for six years in order to obtain wealth. Anytime that Laban changed the offers or messed with the wages, Jacob could have left him and he would have been legally and morally correct in doing so. We see in these first few verses that at least he had a good reason to leave. Jacob's wealth and had uh, upset the sons of Laban, we read here, and we see Jacob fleeing in secret. If we think about it, we can understand why Jacob may have wanted to stay with Laban, Laban, even under the circumstances. When Jacob left home, remember that Esau was very angry, and Esau had promised that as soon as Isaac died, Esau was coming after Jacob. In short, Jacob could have been thinking, you know, if I return home, I know what's waiting for me there. So while it may not be ideal here with Laban, at least I'm not having to deal with Esau's wrath. There's also a certain laziness that can come with the familiar. It's not like Jacob was going to call a moving company and they were going to come pack up his things and he was going to move. At this point, Jacob had an entire household to plan and care for. He's got two wives, two concubines, 11 sons, at least one daughter. Uh, later on, there's conversation uh, right here in the same chapter that would imply he actually had more than one daughter. He's got servants, herds, camels, and all the gear required to maintain all of this. This can be just like the Christian of today. Well, what do I mean? Well, we know that God has called us to do something, but we lack the aggressiveness or we lack the intentionality to drive us to get it done. We're comfortable, and thus our laziness and our flesh will slow us down. 
And I believe we see here the Lord's gentle correction and encouragement upon his servant, Jacob, as he lived with Laban. I mean, think of it. And this is what John Calvin actually wrote about this. He says, for if Laban had been kind and pleasant to him, Jacob would have been lulled to sleep. But now he was driven away by anger. The Lord often secures the salvation of his people by subjecting them to the hatred, envy, and malevolence of the wicked, rather than allowing them to be soothed with bland words. It is far more hopeful for holy Jacob to have his father-in-law and his sons opposing him than to have them courteously agreeing to his wishes for their compliance might have deprived him of God's blessing. Now I ask you, is that a message <laughs> that you would hear from much of what is called evangelicalism here in the West? That quote that I just read from John Calvin talking about how that the Lord may bring the hatred and uh, all the other things, the negative talking and everything. Uh, he says, you know, they were not courteously agreeing to Jacob's wishes. You know, is that a message that you're going to hear from today's evangelicalism? And the answer that I'm going to say to that is no. It's more likely that you've heard some nonsense about living your best life now. And it amazes me how many false prophets there are who would rather tell you how wonderful you are and how pleased God is with you and how happy God is for you. And God just wants you to, you know, you do you, bro. That's one of the things I've heard. You do you. God loves you just the way you are. I've heard the circus that is currently going on in so-called evangelicalism today, at least here in the U.S., referred to as evangelism. And the so-called woke preachers and teachers that we have called evangelifish. It's a soft gospel, and it's truly no gospel at all. And where am I going with this? Well, let me take a moment here, and I want to read to you from Hebrews chapter 12, verses 6 through 11, and hear what the Word of God has to say. He says, For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, but he for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And here's another passage, and this one comes from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 12 through 13, and it says, Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer 
persecution. But evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. My point here is simply that Joel Osteen and anybody else you see on so-called Christian television is not going to tell you this. Yet we see not only from these New Testament passages, but here in the life of Jacob, that the life of the righteous is not without its persecutions. And these come for our good and for God's glorification. Was Jacob prosperous? No question, he was prosperous. But he was prosperous because of the great promises of God, the Abrahamic covenant and in spite of his own shortcomings. And we should see here that it was not life on easy street for Jacob. The problem with affluence and prosperity is that these things distract us from holy living as they attract us to the world. Do you understand what I mean by that? We are distracted from holy living. We are distracted from the things that God has called us to do because of our affluence, because of our prosperity. It's a totally different thing that we see in Western culture today than what Jacob was experiencing here. We become completely unaware of our heavenly blessings. Indeed, God awakens his people through the world's lack of favor, their hatred for us, violence, their threats, the increasing political hostility to the gospel that we see here in the United States. Do we desire to be men-pleasers or God-pleasers? Interestingly, the evil of Laban's son's hearts are on display here too. They bring a complaint against God's chosen as if Jacob had taken what was theirs by force. And I want you to follow me through this. I'm going to dig a little deep here, but I want you to stay with me. You see, Jacob did not rob the sons of Laban, but there's this greed among them. This is so like our world today. You see, sinners have a hunger that is never satisfied. They have a lust in their heart, which is truly insatiable. And this is why among the unregenerated, we see this envy of prosperity of their fellow man. They're jealous of what others have. They are tormented at the apparent or the perceived success of others. This whole idea of trying to keep up with the Joneses, it torments them. Interestingly, this plays perfectly into the class warfare of the leftists here in the West. All of these movements that we see here in the United States and the war going on against Western culture play into this ungodly perception that the poor are made so because of the so-called unjust actions of others. But I want you to notice this about Jacob's situation here. Laban's sons are not concerned with whether it was just or unjust, you know, the how Jacob acquired his great wealth. All they seem to care about is their 
perception that it had been taken from them. And this is exactly what left-wing politicians sell to people all the time. If the rich weren't so rich, you wouldn't be in the situation you're in. They took it from you. But if you look to the state, if you look to the government, we will take care of you. And we're going to level the playing field. Do you understand, dear friends, that this is based in an appeal to your flesh, an appeal to jealousy and greed and the most base human behavior? Do you see it? I want to share with you what that great theologian, John Calvin, I'm going to quote John Calvin a lot in this particular podcast, but this is what he wrote. He said, Laban had before stated that he had been enriched by Jacob's arrival and that he had been blessed by the Lord on account of Jacob. But now his sons murmured and he himself was upset to find that Jacob also enjoyed the same blessing. From this, we perceive the blindness of avarice, which can never be satisfied. Paul calls the love of money the root of all evil because they who want to swallow everything up must be perfidious, cruel, ungrateful, and in every way unjust. In addition to this, it should be observed that the sons of Laban in the impetuosity of their younger years gave vent to their vexation but the father like a cunning old fox was silent though he betrayed his wickedness by his attitude what is he saying there man i wish i could write like that it's beautiful basically what he's saying is is that the sons are bringing uh an accusation against jacob and even though Laban isn't really saying anything, his attitude reveals his heart. And it's this concept that you only have what you have because you took it from me. So I'm going to find some way to level the playing field. So getting back to Genesis 31, we're going to look at verses 3 through 10, we see Jacob giving a kind of history lesson here to his wives. There's a lot which can be said about this whole section of our study, but I will be brief and I will try to summarize it here. First, I want you to notice in verse 3 that God tells Jacob to return to the land of your fathers. God does not call it Canaan land here. He calls it the land of Jacob's fathers, not because they owned it, not because they were born there, but because God had promised it to them. At this point, the family owned a burial plot or they owned a tomb. You may remember Abraham and Sarah are buried in this place, and it's the only place that they purchased with money. It's the only place that is theirs. But yet God says, go to the land of your fathers. So notice that Jacob did not move on his own. He contemplated his next move based upon the word of the living God. So whatever it is that you think God has spoken to you, let me encourage you. If it's not in the Bible, God did not say it. I will repeat that one more time. If it is not in the Bible, God did not say it. 
while it is true that God spoke to Jacob in a dream here, you need to remember that Jacob did not have the Bible. At this point, they didn't even have the Ten Commandments. So at this point in biblical history, God would speak to his servants through visions, through dreams, often through the angel of the Lord, which we are going to read about, which we did read about. But you also need to remember that all those false teachers that I just made reference to, and I think I mentioned, um, who did I mention? Joel Osteen. I'm going to add some more to the list here while I'm thinking about it. T.D. Jakes, Joyce Meyer, Creflo Dollar, Jesse Duplantis, Mike Murdoch, Rod Parsley, Freddie Price. Of course, I mentioned Joel Osteen already. Kenneth Copeland, Paula White, Juanita Bynum, Benny Hinn. These are just a few. I'm sure the list is even longer. But these folks all have dreams and visions. And they, just like an evil generation, they are always seeking a sign. And the problem is, of course, that these are unbiblical and extra-biblical revelations. In other words, what I just said, it's not in the Bible, therefore God did not speak it. These things are pure evil. It's better for you to get your direction directly from the printed Bible which you have in your hands. Read it. It's better than some esoteric, purely subjective dream some sign or some vision. And let me define my terms here. Subjective means that I can make it mean anything I want it to mean. You look at something, you see one thing. I look at it, I see something differently. That is subjective. When something is objective, that means that there's only one way to look at it. For example, the speed limit is objective. It is not subjective. Now, some people like to think it's subjective and they can obey it or not, but the point is there is a limit and that is it. If it's 55 miles an hour, it's 55 miles an hour. But when something is subjective, it means I can interpret it. I can go any way I want with it. You can go any way you want with it. And there's no way to test these things except through the Bible. So I put very little stock in feelings, signs and visions and dreams. Uh, you know, <laughs> it's just um, not a valid way that God speaks to his people today. How can I say that? Because we have the Bible. The Bible is the standard. Not Benny Hinn and his prophecy or any of these other folks, Joyce Meyer or Jesse Duplantis or any of these people who have visions and dreams. It's not biblical. So before I continue on a, a rant about that, you can probably tell what I think about what is called Christian TV and here in the West. And you can tell what I think about the prosperity doctrine. It is a bunch of garbage. And if you are listening to it, if you're being instructed by that, you're being deceived. So let me move on, get off that rant. Let's move on to verses 11 through 13. And here we have another theophany. The angel of God appears. And you'll note that 
in some English translations, the word angel is capitalized. It's got a capital letter A, and that's just an indication by the editors that this is an appearance of God in the flesh. It was understood by the Hebrew writers that this was an appearance of God. So we see here this appearance of the eternal son in human form before the incarnation. And we've talked about this before, but notice here that God has given a specific command to Jacob. And that's what I want you to see. We've talked about theophanies before. The point here is, this is what he said. Arise, get out of this land, and return to the land of your family. So let's take a look at Rachel and Leah's reply. In verse 14, they ask, is there still any portion or inheritance for us in our father's house? Now, this is a rhetorical question. What are what are they really saying? They're saying that they've received all that they're going to receive from their father. And they go on to say that they are now considered strangers by their father. They admit that they were sold by him like property to Jacob. And this phrase is interesting too. It says, and also completely consumed our money. So what do you think they mean by that? Remember how I told you that Jacob was kind of working on a payment plan for seven years? That, that was my paraphrase of the situation. It ended up being 14 years, by the way, because he worked for Rachel. He got Leah instead. Then he had Rachel. Then he worked another seven years. So he was working to build up a dowry for his wives. And you may remember that we would soon see, um, we're going to, let me rephrase that. You may also remember, uh, I, I said something like, we're going to see that Laban is probably not the kind of guy who would save the money. And um, here it seems that uh, if we go back through and you read chapter 31 again, you're going to see that I was correct. I'm not alone in my conclusions. Laban doesn't come across as the kind of guy who would save the money. And so the Hebrew here where it says that he's consumed our money, it actually states more literally in Hebrew, he has eaten up our money. And though we're going to soon see that Jacob has idolatry in his own house, I do love the response of the women here. They state, whatever God has said to you, and they're talking to Jacob, whatever God has said to you, do it. I tell you, blessed is the man who has a wife with that attitude about God's instructions to her husband. Her, her husband. In ministry, I have seen several occasions where the pastor's wife is not submitted to her husband. She's not submitted to the Word of God. And it may not completely wreck the ministry, but it definitely does damage to it. That's enough said about that. So Jacob heads out. He heads out. He's heading home. And he does so secretly. Before he does, though, we read that Rachel takes the household idols from Laban. These were most likely small idols. Uh, they're called teraphim. That's another word for them. Pagans believed that these idols would keep watch over their household 
and they were probably used by Laban in his divinations. And remember, we talked about those divinations, and it's how I believe what he used to come to the conclusion that the reason that he was being prospered was because the hand of God was upon Jacob. So here's Laban seeking pagan means to find out the truth of, of the true living God. And when God revealed himself to Abraham, Sarah, it's implied that Sarah left her pagan idols. And when Isaac took Rebekah as wife, she left her idols also. Remember, she's coming from Laban's family, so she would have been familiar with the pagan culture there. But she leaves that and comes to Isaac. But here we see, at least while they are there living among Laban's household, or at least in Laban's proximity, Rachel and Leah have not given up their idol worship. And we read that Jacob heads toward the mountains of Gilead with Rachel, with Leah, and with the idols that Rachel had stolen. From verse 22 through verse 42, we read that Laban learns of Jacob's departure after three days. So Laban pursues Jacob and overtakes him after seven days. There is a command here, and there is a definite message from God to Laban not to speak to Jacob either good or bad. And you know, when I first read that, I thought, well, if you're not allowed to say anything good, and you're not allowed to say anything bad, um, what else is there? I mean, what, what, what can you say? And so I did a little research on this. This is another idiomatic expression, and it basically means the conclusion that I came to already. It means don't say anything at all. Well, what did God mean? Did he mean you're not to ever speak to Laban again? No, this is what it means. It means that Laban is not to say or do anything harmful to Jacob. It was entirely within Laban's power to do so. You're going to notice from this section that it mentions the brethren of Laban. These would be his enforcers. These would be his soldiers, his soldiers or his servants, if you will. And so they catch up. Laban overtakes Jacob and he begins to list out his complaints against Jacob. And I've listed them here. I'm going to number them off for you. I'm going to paraphrase it. That's simply to put it in my own words. And here are the complaints from Laban to Jacob. Number one, you carried away my daughters like captives. Number two, you did not give me a chance to send you away with a party. Now, it's interesting that Laban brings this up here because it appears to be a custom of the land. This is what they wanted to do. You may remember when Rebecca left and she wanted, uh, she was leaving to go marry Isaac. Um, it was also an appeal to the custom of the land. And you may remember that this is how Jacob got his first wife, Leah, instead of Rachel. Uh, Laban says, you know, it's our custom here that the older has to go first uh, before the younger. And so here again, we see Laban saying, you know, it's our custom here. We would have sent you away with a party. Whether or not that's true or not, it's one of his complaints. 
I didn't get a chance to give you a party. Then he says, number three, I did not get to kiss my sons and daughters. Well, what does he mean by this? Certainly his own daughters, Leah and Rachel, would be included in this, but he's also referring to his grandchildren. Number four, you took my gods. And that makes us want to ask, well, what kind of God do you serve that allows himself to be kidnapped? (laughs) I'm going to tell you the God I serve is the living God. And there is no kidnapping my God. My God cannot be contained. My God is the God of this universe. And what is man that my God is mindful of him? And so now for the first time, we see Jacob's list of 20 years worth of grievances come back. So... I kind of numbered those out too, and you could you could kind of, you could divide those into two different parts. Uh, I just kind of made one long list out of it. And again, this is my paraphrase, but here we go. Jacob says back to Laban, "Why did I leave in secret? Well, I was afraid you would take your daughters, which are now my wives, and you do it by force." And I'll tell you what, and I kind of listed this as number two. Jacob says, you can kill anyone you find who has taken your gods. Now, I would add here that this was not very smart on Jacob's part. Uh, We have to wonder how he would have felt if he would have actually known that Rachel, his love, had stolen those idols. Her excuse before her father, you remember the father comes in. And Laban is inspecting everything. He's looking around. He's looking for these idols. And basically she says, as she is sitting on top of the camel bag that has the idols in it, she says, well, dad, I can't get up because I am menstruating right now. And and this is just my speculation here, but Laban's no fool, okay? He probably strongly suspected at this point where the idols were, but he also knows that he's not going to kill his own daughter. So Jacob says at the end of the investigation, Jacob says, identify what is yours that I have taken from you. So this is number three. Identify what's yours. Number four You didn't find anything, did you? No, you didn't. And then number five, here comes Jacob's list. He says, I served you for 20 years and your flock's females did not miscarry. Now, this is Jacob's assertion that God's blessing was on the flock in part because Jacob was there. Jacob saying, you got this blessing because of who I am and God has shown me favor and therefore he has shown you favor. Number six, I did not eat from your flock. Number seven, I took the losses of the wild beast that ate your flock. And apparently from the word that is used here, there could have been some theft. It it says that if they were stolen by day or by night. So I don't know if that means for the beast necessarily, or if that was two different things. Somebody came in and stole things, or wild beasts took them. 
and it's two separate things. But the only point is, is that Jacob is saying, look, I took those losses. I didn't charge them to you. I basically ate the cost of that. Number eight, I was thirsty, cold, and I had sleepless nights all because I was watching your flock. I served you for 14 years for my wives and an additional six years for the flocks. And during this time, you have changed my wages 10 different times. Number 10, had it not been for God, you would have sent me away with nothing right now. And you know this is true because God rebuked you last night. So that's kind of Jacob's reply back to Laban. And you'll notice that Laban then replies back yet again, and Laban still seems to be unwilling to admit that all this is rightly and fairly Jacob's. Imagine Laban kind of standing there and he's making a sweeping notion, motion with his hands, and he says, all of this is mine. There's not a thing here that did not originate with me. These are my daughters. These are my children. Even those flocks out there in the field, they are mine too. And then you kind of see this resignation come from Laban. You know, he knows that he has made a deal with Jacob. He knows that while he has the military might to leave Jacob with absolutely nothing, God has told him to back off. And the truth is that Laban knows he can do nothing on behalf of the daughters or the grandchildren. He knows that he's been beaten. And you should keep in mind that all of this went on in front of both houses. So Laban's house is here. Jacob's house is here. These were the witnesses to all of this. It was kind of like a public hearing. And there's no doubt that this was a tense exchange. I would say had it not been for God, this would have probably gotten into a bloody fight. Thus, Laban and Jacob reach an agreement. And they build a pillar. They have a feast and they enter into a covenant with each other that neither will cross the marker that they're building there, the pile of rocks. Neither will cross that marker with the intent to harm the other. So we kind of have this boundary here. This idea of God watching between these, these two men, it's not some kind of a romantic or best friend kind of thing going on here. In fact, the word Galid, which is the word that Jacob names the place, it actually means witness. And I've seen this verse of scripture engraved on jewelry, jewelry <laughs> and bracelet charms. You've probably seen it too. May the Lord watch between you and me when we are absent from one another. Well, friends, that's only a portion of the whole scripture. If there's one thing I want you to learn from me in this entire podcast, it's context. And the context here tells us that this is more along the lines of something like this. And again, this is my interpretation of it. This is my paraphrase. It's more like this. Listen, I can't watch you all the time, but God is watching you and he will enforce this covenant because I cannot trust you. And the reason I can't trust you is because you're a sneaky man and I can't trust you, but God is watching between us. 
that's kind of the way you need to understand this. Now, is it a sweet prayer to pray? You know, may the Lord watch between you and me. Absolutely. I, I pray, you know, between me and my family members, my friends, may God watch between us and keep you safe. But that's quite different than saying, may God watch between us because I put this pillar up here and this is a boundary between you and me. This pillar is going to stand as a witness. You don't cross this line. I'm not going to cross the line with evil intentions toward each other. Very different kind of context. So verse 55 brings us to the end of the chapter. And note what we see here. Laban's character is portrayed in this verse, and I believe that it speaks to us about all humanity as image bearers of the one true living God. Laban, who has behaved in ungodly ways, still blesses his daughters and his grandchildren. And again, this will be my last quote from John Calvin, but this is what he says about this particular verse. He says, This teaches us that certain principles of divine knowledge remain in the hearts of the wicked, and so they are left with no excuse and cannot claim to be ignorant about God. So a question is, where did this practice of blessing originate? Well, it came from the idea that there is a source of all good things. There is a source of blessing. And that was Calvin's point here. He's pointing out that it's still in the heart of Laban, though Laban is ungodly. This is especially important, again, in our world today, as we face those who make moral claims. Or what am I talking about? Well, there's a moral claim that's very popular in our culture right now. And the claim is this, and I'm sure you have heard it. Black lives matter. Or perhaps you've heard love is love. Well, you see, a worldview, and I want you to follow me on this, a worldview that rejects the gospel of Jesus Christ has no basis at all to say that black life or any life matters. You see, my worldview as a Christian states that, yes, black lives do matter. Why? Because black lives share in the image of God. Do black lives matter? Absolutely, they certainly do. But I have a reason to say so. It's my love for Christ and my love for his gospel that gives me a foundation to proclaim the importance of black life. Do you see what I'm saying? If you believe in a blind, unguided, evolutionary process, and that these evolutionary processes are not acted upon by anything in the universe except random chance, and that the universe is un caring, then my question to you is, why does black life matter? I'm not saying that you cannot believe that black lives matter. I'm simply saying that you have no reason to believe that. The only reason to believe that black lives matter is because you embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
you embrace the standard from which all good things come. You embrace that source that Laban is even recognizing, even though he doesn't want to admit it, as he's blessing his children and grandchildren. Another phrase that comes from the LGBTQ crowd is that love is love. Love is love, right? Well, really? Love is love? Where in a world void of God, which embraces chance chemical combinations, you know what the great Carl Sagan used to say, and he was an atheist and an evolutionist, by the way, and I'm quite sure that today he he is a creationist, but Carl Sagan said that we're all basically stardust. So you and I are stardust. We are a chance combination of chemicals. So in a universe that behaves that way, where is the grounds for love? What compels you to love? Can you taste love? Can you see it? Can you smell it? No, you can't. Can you touch it with your hands? No, you can't. Love is something that exists outside of us and in an uncaring universe with no true source of good, you cannot explain love. But now let's add another few letters to the LGBTQ phrase. I want to add maps. Have you heard of maps? Well, I'm going to tell you what MAPS stands for. It stands for Minor Attracted Persons. Well, what does that mean, Minor Attracted Persons? Here's what it means, dear friends. It means that they are sexually attracted to children. I want you to think about that. So if, as these godless sinners want to believe, if love is love, then why aren't maps included with LGBTQ? Do you see where I'm going with this? I hope you do. I hope I've made myself clear here. You see, my point is simply this. Just as Laban was ungodly and he was a devious man, he knew it was right to bless Jacob's family, and that came from somewhere. And I'm saying that all humanity knows deep down in their heart, they know that black lives matter. And deep down in their heart, they know that homosexuality is wrong. And they know these things because they are image bearers of God. And God has spoken about these things. It's because even the sinner knows in his heart that there is a God, no matter how he demands like a spoiled little child that he get his own way, no matter how he refuses to acknowledge it, he knows there is a God. And Romans tells us in chapter 1, verses 18 through 21, listen to this. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. 
For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. So I hope that you can see the point that I'm making here. You may refuse to acknowledge God. You may refuse to acknowledge that there is a standard for love. You may refuse to admit that God has defined what marriage is. You see, the gospel of Christ says that there is one race. It's the human race. It tells us that there is one problem of the human race, and that problem is sin. And it tells us that there's one solution, and that solution is Christ. And believe me, I understand that movements like Black Lives Matter, in fact, they boast about this. It's public knowledge. It's not even a secret. They are trained Marxists. And so the phrase Black Lives Matter, I can assure you, it is a ruse. It is a facade. They don't care about Black Lives Matter. They care about overthrowing Western civilization. And they just so happen to be using this phrase and this movement as a way to stir up conflict. But I can tell you that when I say Black Lives Matter, I mean it because I'm appealing to a standard outside of myself. I'm appealing to the standard of God and his righteousness and his holiness. I'm appealing to something outside of myself when I talk about love. I'm not talking about something that is arbitrary. I'm not talking about something that is subjective. I'm talking about something that is objective because it is based upon the living God and his word. So I hope this has made some sense to you. I hope it has been an encouragement to you. I would like to say at this point that if this particular episode seems a little rough, it's because I've been struggling with allergies all day. So if it sounds like I've been breathing funny (laughs) or if I sound a little nasally, it's because I am dealing with allergies. Now, I'm not sick with COVID or anything like that. Um, But if you hear this and you'd like to pray for me that I get over these allergies, I would be grateful for your prayers. With that said, may God bless you. May he keep you and may he make his face to shine upon you. for listening to the forge podcast and don't forget to leave a review with comments let me hear from you leave a voice message through the link 
I hope and pray that you find ways to apply the truths of God's word in daily living. Remember, dear Christian, you are forgiven. It is by grace that you've been saved through faith. May you grow in Christ in the study of the Bible and truly overcome wounds that were caused by sinful choices and actions of the past. I also pray that you are always reforming, seeking to glorify God in all that you say and do. Remember to be grateful to God for what he is working out not only in you but in all his creation as well. And lastly, be encouraged. Encouraged to serve God and others as you grow in him. 